Talk Recorded live. You are listening to the heartbeat of the stage on 42 Minutes, production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a show with split-second presentation as well as split-second calculation. Today is March 19, 2013, and this is episode number 76. I'm Douglas Bowles, and tonight we'll analyze the past to project into the future. And that's episode, episode 76. <laughs> I'm glad that you like that. I was born in 76. I know. All right. All right. Did I, did I just kind of like steal the thunder of one of the questions? No. no. You like... <laughs> sold the thunder of the intro. Take it away, <laughs> Mr. Buzzkill. <laughs> well, you're listening to the buzzkill of the sage. This is what I do. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's awesome, though. Nah, you were still in thunder. You were just striking lightning. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyways, uh, 42 minutes. So we'll introduce who we're talking to. This is rapper, writer, and performer Sage Francis, dubbed the, the forefather of indie hop due to his genre mixing and frequent collaborations as the first hip-hop artist signed to Epitaph. He is the founder and CEO of the independent record label Strange Famous Records, an institution with an impressive roster of artists that grew out of his passion and sick of mixtapes made by hand on the floor of his Providence, Rhode Island apartment. More information yep. can be found at Sage uh, or StrangeFamousRecords.com. Sage will be kicking off a series of tour dates this, this Thursday at the Treefort Music Festival in Boise, Idaho. He will be closing out the first night of music for the festival, performing at the Reef at 12.30 a.m., which is actually early Friday morning. Sage will be following strange, famous artist B. Dolan, who appears at 11.45 p.m. Be sure and come early. Uh, you don't want to miss this, and you don't want to be stuck outside. For more details, visit sagefrancis.net. Thank you so much for coming on, Sage. How are you tonight? I'm good. I apologize for cutting off the intro. I actually didn't know how long it would be. I thought it was my turn. But no, that's so funny because our our lens, our little world is that we like to look for cosmic giggles, coincidence, synchronicities, or strange attractors. And this is episode number 76, and you were born in 1976. Yeah, bicentennial baby. <laughs> but Pope Francis just was elected, and he's 76 years old. So does this, make, <laughs> does this make you the new hip-hop pope? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> well, so uh, I kind of want to start in that weird uh, weird zone where we, we know a lot of people that take these uh, sinks and then create elaborate conspiracy theories. You know, um, are you one of the Illuminati sage? I, I well, I'm illuminated. <laughs> Good, <laughs> because I mean, what might happen is that if you do become the hip hop pope, we might be culpable on some level. <laughs> yeah, you're already tainted, man. You're already, you're already, uh, you've you've touched the dirt, and you know the another funny synchronicity of uh, the Pope Francis thing is it happened. <clears throat> he was he was he became pope. About a day or two after I posted a uh, uh, satirical story about the Pope uh, encountering Chris Hansen from To Catch a Predator, you know, the the show where they catch molesters online. 
right or predators online, sexual predators online and uh it was it was a story that i i was sitting on for three years because i didn't know the best time to post it and then i was like all right well um the benedict is 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 retiring and this was a, i thought it was a funny excuse for him to retire was because he got caught by chris hansen and then the the pope francis thing happened and then everyone started calling me Pope Francis. And I said, if you call me Pope Francis, I kill you. <laughs> I want to hear a rap papal bull. But it's <laughs> <laughs> My rap is infallible, son. <laughs> well, but Valuable. starting there, um, a lot of our audience kind of to get to this place where we're at, um, they, it seems like a lot of us were initiated with 9-11 where it seemed like reality broke down on that day or media broke down or something broke down where all of a sudden uh, we have to kind of question the stories. And I know that you're, you kind of blew up after you recorded Makeshift Patriot uh, in response to that. Um, what impressions do you have, you know, 10 plus years after 9-11 and, and this? Well, yeah. Well, it's 12 years later now, uh, or about, and um, <clears throat> when that happened and when our release Makeshift Patriot, it was during a very busy time in the beginning of my career where everything actually was popping off. I mean, because I had already, I had already won Scribble Jam and a couple other big battles and right. um, was releasing the mixtapes and the underground buzz was super strong at that point, but I didn't have the kind of outreach major label artists had. But to my favor, Napster was huge at the time. And when I released Makeshift Patriot, that was a way where my a song from somebody who people had been hearing about but didn't really know his music, then they were able to access it and Makeshift Patriot became that song. And even people who didn't know who I was found that song because it was the only song of its kind at the time to release a song that was questioning the government and the media and American society in general was pretty much unheard of during this, this mass time of like major fear and ignorance and anger and all these really bad negative feelings that I was also uh, privy to. I, I mean, I was feeling it too, but to 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 kind of sift through it as someone who had graduated with a degree in journalism just a couple of years prior and supposed to be in New York on that day and I had a show the next day actually no I had a show on that day in Brooklyn but yeah. I didn't leave Rhode Island yet and um and then I went 5 days later because I was actually like most people I think were were like totally unsure of how to um, how to make sense of that new reality we were experiencing because I, I knew from there on out that this was going to be something that we all carry with us forever. After that point, it was like things had changed at that point. You knew, you knew it was different. Things were not the same after that point. And to go to New York city and just experience the energy and make sense of it that way was super important for me. And to incorporate that in Makeshift Patriot, I think it all translated in the song. And I think that's why it resonated so strongly. Part of it, you know, and other parts were just me kind of 
I think documenting a collective experience that some parts were overlooked for quite a while. And um, yeah, it seemed like it took a lot of people about four years to get to where you got in five days. Right. And I so will. Yeah. Where does I the mean, shrewdness? I, the shrewdness is this your journalism background or just? No, I I don't think it was a journalist. I think the only tie-in with journalism was the way I witnessed reporters and and reading stories about what was happening and noticing great great mistakes or or fallacies and and me not understanding how reporters were getting away with that and. It, I don't know. I, I guess it insulted my my journalistic integrity. But as an artist, to 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 be sensitive to what was going on around me, what family was saying, what friends were saying, what people were saying online, and and calculating all of that in a way where it made sense to me, and channeling that through a song, I, that is how it came about. And 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 just recording and documenting it as I went where I, I just realized it was such a huge moment. I wanted to mark it. And not only for the country's sake or the world's sake, but really for my own sake, because it's the kind of thing where you write <clears throat> a diary or, or a journal entry or something. And, and you kind of maybe 10 years later, you forget about it. And then you'll go back and look at it and you, you get drawn right back into that time period or that, that exact moment where you wrote it. Yeah. And that's what it meant to me, but I was already busy with the music stuff that, and you know, I just had the, the resources and faculties to, to make that song happen. <laughs> and it was important to do it that way, you know? Well, so I actually found your music and that song, like, associated with a conspiracy podcast. Did you ever go into well, that realm? Um, this was, no, this was well before any of the big conspiracies started to, to knock about. But I, I mean, I knew that was going to happen. Um, right. And, and the song itself has been adopted by people of many different, philosophies on on 9-11 and the government and society and i where are your I actually, at though where, where I, are you I, at? I you know i i purposely kept them out of that song for the most part and that kind of left it open for interpretation in in these kind of ways not totally open but but it still got interpreted in in ways where there were soldiers who were in Iraq who were listening to the song and thinking it was, it was like theme music for, for them to go killing innocent Iraqis. And there was militia men who thought it was, you know, supposed to inspire them to um, stand their ground and, and maybe take over the government. I don't know. There there was like a few weird instances where the song popped up, even in national news where the song was playing in the background and it was, it was attached to a story that I didn't really totally jive with, but there it was. And, um, I don't know. It gave me a lot. Hell though, man, that is like, that's some, that's some crazy shit. You write most of your stuff, to be interpreted a lot of different ways, though, right? 
Right. I, I think it's important to do that. I, but I also need to be careful about that. I, you know, inspiration can go many ways. And um, as long as I'm alive and interactive and accessible, I, I try to clear the air when I see it getting muddied up too much. But I also have to understand that once the song is released or once once the creation is done and put out there, it's, I can't baby it. I can't, you know, like I can't, I can't be, uh, the overprotective daddy at that point. <laughs> That's a possible uh, direction. And I'm, I'm curious about, you know, Sage, the writer, it seems like you wear a lot of different hats in your life, but so like, what's the difference between writing rap, and writing spoken word poetry. Well, this I don't write too much spoken word poetry. The um, the process is, uh, I mean, it's tough to say. The last time I wrote anything that was strictly for a spoken word environment was probably over ten years ago, and um, hmm. and those were there were only a few instances where I actually did that. All of my writing ever since I was eight years old, if it was meant for a performance aspect, it was, it was, it was rap. It was as an MC, me just putting songs in that, uh, the verse structure and bars and with all of that in mind as I write. And otherwise it would just be some kind of, I don't know, uh, some post online or whatever, but when I write and I sit down, I think in, 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 in rhythmic structures and, uh, that's how I like to perform. Um, there's, there's times where I deviate from that obviously. And that's what gave me a unique voice in hip hop from way back when, but it's really not my norm. So then you don't normally write for the page, like as a, like a traditional poet, no, 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 I do. I think, I think my rap, I, I try to write rap in a way where it works on page. And this is probably one of the greatest distinctions between me and most other rappers where I want to, I want to use the rap format and have it still work on page and, and make no sacrifices for the rhyme. And I think that's what the best MCing does when it's, it's well, in the kind of style of hip-hop that I make. I think that's the best kind. Okay, so 76 is when you were born. You were 8 and 84, is that right? Well, if your math is correct. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think. I can't figure it. 86, yes. That's good math, oh. William. What was your uh, what was your first influences then? I'm trying to think of what would be out in '84. Oh well, it was Run DMC. It was um, the Fat Boys. It it was uh, it was a it was it's kind of a common story for '70s babies who were coming up in hip hop, where we kind of were mainly exposed to Def Jam and obviously like uh uh. Sugar Gang and stuff like that, which was the first first commercial uh, hip hop stuff to come out. But 
it, it, it may, mainly was Run DMC. That was the big one. And, and Fat Boys, which as a kid I loved. And after that, it was LL Cool J. And it was Beastie Boys. And um, eventually it was Rakim and, well, Ice-T and Cool Modi and Slick Rick. Uh, there was oh Big Daddy Kane, <laughs> EPMD. There was so many <clears throat> artists coming out. Like I, I mean, I know I could go on and on and on, but there was so right. many artists when, when they came out. There wasn't a billion artists the way it is today. There wasn't a billion rappers. There was there was a, it was a shared experience. Like if you were into hip hop, and an artist came out with an album that was accessible to us. Uh, the main like everyone everywhere whether it would be through uh mtv yo mtv raps or if it was you know if you were exposed to it from college radio there was a lot of the same artists so all of us who came up during that era were listening to the same artists and it's not like that anymore because the, the there's so many artists out there it's so easy to get stuff out and there's not this shared collective experience in hip-hop no matter which which genre or subgenre you listen to? So, who are you? Yeah. Who are you then? I mean, who is? Or in who public, is I mean, Public Enemy back then was when it started with it started with uh, Run DMC. But when I went, my mom took me to the the concert, and it was Run DMC as the headliner. But um, Public Enemy opened up, and that is what kind of blew my mind when I saw public enemy and that took me on a whole other path after that point where run DMC kind of had the bad boy image and they were, I mean, they were the coolest fucking dudes out there, but public enemy <laughs> took that anger and there was, there was a bigger purpose. Uh, that kind of was, I can um, totally see the Chuck D influence now. I don't think that I ever realized that before in your music, yeah, but I, mean, I can the, totally hear the, the Chuck D now. Yeah, I mean the song the song you referenced opening up this show, the you the um the buzzkill, there's there's a lot of public enemy uh influence in that song. And I think they were one on they were just too. It really has the cool. public enemy feel uh dance uh Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I got my two left hooks, yeah. <laughs> so who's your yeah, favorite new who's your favorite new though, Sage? My favorite new, well, uh, favorite new what? <laughs> who you, who who have you heard lately in the new fragrance. style? What fragrance do you like currently? Sorry. Uh, I'm not up on too much new because, like I said, there's just, just it's kind of a, a it's a saturated market at this point, and I I don't have enough time to sift through all that. Um, so are you, I focus, are you listening to a lot of old still then? No. No, I, I mean I run a record label, you know, and right. No, I'm not a kid anymore. I, I I don't get to listen to whatever I want whenever I want. <laughs> I'm stuck at this job that I, I I hired myself at, and I'm not complaining, but I'm stuck listening to the same songs over and over because I'm either making them or helping develop them, and it's all of our artists. Uh, the the songs I've listened to most recently like the most is the the prolific album um that i help i'm executive producer of and i've i've 
for two years now. I've, I probably listened to that that album two thousand times, and <laughs> in all different formats. So you know, like when when I talk about music, I talk about hip hop and the stuff. I have to I have to really sign on with artists who I can stomach two thousand times in a row, and that is with that comes writing that inspires me and prolifics writing does that. And buddy peace produced the album and I love his beats. I've worked with him a lot and I intend to work with him more, but when it comes time for me to chill and, and kind of remove myself and cleanse the palate, I listen to just classical music or ambient stuff and stuff that just calms me down and there's no lyrics involved. That's interesting because I, I mean, that's the thing that I'm not really a hip hop guy but your stuff is really accessible to someone who's not because musically it's really varied and really interesting. And then I can't believe that you collaborated with the composer of Amelie. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Yen was one of my favorite composers. And the fact that that came together was a result of... um, him working with my booking agent or they were, I think they were trying to get him on their roster and I had sent out an APB like, Hey, I'm looking for music that isn't typical beats. I'm looking for stuff. That's not typical hip hop. I'll provide the hip hop part of it, but I want to, I want to start working with people who don't normally work with hip hop. And, and, and thankfully I did that because when Yen Tiersen sent me that composition, it was completed as as you hear on my record the the song best of times and um it was the very it was the the second to last day of my whole recording session while I was staying in Chicago at the time and i had to write that in one night and record it the next day and that wow. that is one of those songs that just came together uh just kind of in a flash and thankfully it, it turned into the song that it is. It, it could have went many ways, but it, it worked out the way I think it needed to. Like it was meant to? Not like it was meant to, but <laughs> like it oh. did. <laughs> uh, I wonder yeah. what you would prefer. Do you prefer writing with a band or more manufactured beat? Like, uh, uh, is there a difference when you're writing with the band? Is there a huge difference when you're writing a song specifically to be played with the band than it is when you get a beat and receive a beat and have to uh, write to it? No. Nah, in fact, there's, there's there's really no difference. Um, not recently. I mean, on the last album, the Life album, it was all a live band, but I heard... I heard the rough sketch of the beats or sorry, the the music, the demos before um, I wrote anything to them, just like I hear a rough sketch of a beat before I write anything to it. And it was the same exact process where I need it to hit me in a certain way. There has to be some kind of mood that it taps into and then the writing can start or I can go through my catalog of lyrics and find stuff that uh, works with that mood and then I develop it from there but it's the same thing like I'm not sitting with them face to face usually I'm not sitting with them and like noodling around and like let's try this well let's try that I'm much more um, deliberate and uh, obsessive and 
I need to listen to something many, many, many times and to sit with like a guitar player or a piano player and, and me try to work out my process while they're suffering right. through my neuroses. It's probably <laughs> not the best way to do it. Yeah. So that's something that I didn't, didn't realize is that um, like you create the music yourself that the life album you actually collaborated more so than you ever have but you know for the most part the early stuff is stuff that you created um what kind uh, of well, no, well, it's a, it was the same way like uh, what i what happens usually is a producer or a beat maker will send me their music and it will be a demo and um if if it hits me in the right way i'll tell them I like this. I want to use this. Please, you know, don't give it away. Let me give me some time to work with this. And sometimes it'll take a month. Other times it'll take five years. Sometimes there's been instances where it took eight years before I actually found the right thing that works with it. And um, then at that point, we can develop it from there. But when when I was working with the live uh, musicians for the Life album, they would send they sent me the demo, and I would re- I recorded my lyrics to that demo. And then when we went to the studio in Chicago, there was another band that replayed a lot of the music, and it it got changed in a bunch of different ways. It came, it actually turned out way different than how I had originally envisioned it, because the 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 stuff that was played was totally switched up while I was in the studio. So that was one one record where I wasn't given the benefit to totally obsess over the final product and and edit it the way that I I typically do and I had to I had to become comfortable with loosening the reins for that. And I think there's a there's a lot of people who say like a lot of fans who had followed me through the years would hear that record and know that it sounds different not just because it's a live band but it's just not the kind of stuff they typically hear from me uh, style-wise. And that's my reasoning for that. But it's also because I just was kind of excited to do something new and push my boundaries a little bit and loosen the reins in ways where I wanted to see what kind of music could be made if I wasn't being such a control freak. Um, And now I'm back to being a control freak. And so that's where you're headed? The next album that you've been working on is nothing like life. Um, yeah, now I'm back to to um, working with a multitude of beat makers and musicians as well, musicians who have sent me their stuff. But overall, what I'm hoping to do because the life album had a more laid back sound. It was it was more of a, a chilled out vibe. I think for the most part, maybe I'm maybe I'm um, maybe I'm kind of framing it wrong but i felt like it was okay this is an older sound this is this is a a guy who's chilled out a little bit more he's not so interested in punching you in the face but he kind of wants to help you up off the ground right like i feel like that's the life album and now i kind of want to just punch fucking dudes in the face again um Punching dudes in the face. (laughs) (laughs) I was, you know, reading up about you today, and you're a black belt, unless this was all a big hoax. Is that true? No, well, I can't, to be very clear, I don't think I should or 
could claim black belt at this point. At one point in my life, I did earn a black belt, and I spent um, many, many, many years training in in all different styles. And um, right up through the, my first couple of years of college, and I was I was actually a private trainer, and um, I was considering. Uh, kickboxing, but this was also the time when the UFC kicked off, and I was, I wanted to, to uh, kind of be an MMA fighter, and stage I'd in the train- cage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I trained for that, and I keep it with me. It was some of the most spiritual part of my life. I mean, that was the most spiritual part of my life, I think, because it was, it was very ritualistic. It was very. Um, meditative and it gave me it gave me an escape and and allowed me to I don't know uh it affected me in a deep way where I still dream about it all the time you know it's one of those things where it it is a big part of me and I I kind of purposely pushed it away once I started uh, pursuing the music career and the uh, poetry and my my college studies and when I said okay this has been such a big part of my life and maybe you know maybe I'm not cut out to be a fighter maybe I need to to start developing other parts of my my mind and my personality and and my life and then I pursued the path that left me here talking to you so um, yeah, I, I can't say I'm, I say I, I was a black belt and I, I can still fight and I do sometimes, but I'm probably too old and fat to really claim fat, but <laughs> I'm a fat belt now. <laughs> uh-huh. so, you're kind of an enigma to me. You're just such a curiosity because. <laughs> you're so disciplined and you did all these different things and but so okay so have you read or heard of the book outliers no i haven't okay so malcolm gladwell writes for the new yorker and you know he's he's a, a fabulous writer but everyone really likes his stuff and he comes up with really clever and interesting ideas but basically he uh postulated that the people that are really special that we look up to aren't as special as we think. They've just done what they do a lot. You know, so his whole shtick was 10,000 hours. Like if you do something for 10,000 hours, you're going to be really good at it. Right. And so this is what was interesting to me. You were talking about your influences. And then on personal journals, you have all these little sage breaks where you you have like raps from when you were eight. Yeah. And I really like the Mother's Day rap, in fact. But so, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so you're an outlier. You know, you've been doing this for so long, and because of that, um, one of the threads that we've had in our discussions lately is trying to help people find their path so they can move towards their life. You know, and so like <clears throat> we were talking to this guy where he was getting questions from kids, you know, about college. Where should I study? What should I do? You know, so what advice? Do you have for like kids about college and life and money? Um, well, it's very tough. Whenever, whenever someone, I mean, I, I'm glad you told me about the outliers thing. The, the truth is, 
whatever it is that people see in me and I, they see me and they say, I could do that. And a part of me is insulted by that because (laughs) (laughs) like, if you think you can do that within a year's time, I, it's ridiculous because it's true. Like starting back when I was eight years old and emulating the artists that still to this day, I think are some of the best in hip hop and developing upon that for years and years over, you know, two decades now and um, kind of being pushed down, pushed out, bullied through the way and, and being insulted and never kind of like getting those pats on the back. We're like, yeah, man, that's what's up. It's like me just kind of pushing myself through that and saying, no, I know this works. Like, I know I can figure this out. I, you know, and, and I can do it in a way that they don't expect and still make it work. And, and that's what I've done. And that's, thankfully it did work out, but I can't say that it works out for everybody. I mean, I've seen it fail for many, many people. In fact, most people that I've worked with, it's failed for. No, I mean, I shouldn't say it failed for them or it failed them, but it it didn't kind of, the end result is not what they expected. And it didn't provide for them eventually. And it kind of fucked up a few lives along the way. So when kids tell me, you know, oh, fuck school, fuck work, I'm going to do this, this is going to happen for me. I, I shake my head. I'm just like, I kind of want to be like, nah, man, it's not, it's not going to work out for you. You're not cut out for it. And you're a piece of shit and you're whack. And, um, (laughs) and like, you know, and either that enrages them or it it sours them to the whole thing, or it inspires them to, to prove me wrong. And even if they prove me wrong at the end of the day, I still feel like it won't be the right move. I still feel like they'll know, man, this does kind of suck. Um, but there was no other choice. This is what I had to do. I, you know, like you just know it. There's that poem by a Bukowski called don't try. And it's the, it's basically the same concept of what I'm talking about here, where like, unless, you know, unless you're burning for it, don't even try. Like if someone else can, um, can put out your fire just with, with a a criticism and, or if, you know, if you get, if you get, uh, just shoveled by random criticism or people not loving you right off the bat, then fuck off. It's like, you do it, whether you have a job, you do this, whether you live alone in the woods with two cats for three years and don't talk to anybody. And, uh, uh, (laughs) you do this, um, if you had your limbs cut off and, you know, there's just like, there's, there's something about writing and, and living the, the life of an artist where it's not supposed to be, um, uh, it's very difficult to explain, but it's not something that you should consider the safety net of your life. Like I know it's there for me always. Cause it's even when it is there, it, it doesn't feel like that. So if people look at me and they're like, man, he's got it made, you know, he's, he's, he's got an audience and, and, you know, he's figured out like several aspects of how the industry works and, and who to go through and, and how to, how to make this work out. Even though I have that, it still is, is a nonstop, 
uh, pain in the fucking ass. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it, and it hasn't, and, and truthfully, it hasn't really provided much happiness. I mean, I, I think that's, that's the moral of the story, but it, satisfaction, I suppose, but happiness, no. And fun, no. But satis- I'm satisfying the need as an artist to do what I feel like I need to do. And if you, you have if, a choice, is that the other the other thing? Like, did you have a choice in this, or do you are you compelled on your? Path? No, I have. A, I mean, no, I I don't have a choice. It's there. Um, but I would be working right now and still doing this. I mean, I'd be. I mean, I do work. I'm saying I'd be working for someone else if I had to, but I still would be doing this. You know, like sometimes it does work out. I'm I'm eternally grateful for that. Really. Um, and there's other people who think they need to quit their job or some other people who think that like they need to, uh, they need this or they need that in order to be an artist. Like my contention is that no, you're an artist regardless of what you have or what you're doing. But until you start being able to sustain, uh, quality lifestyle or a lifestyle you want through your art, don't think that you need to quit anything in order to achieve that Hmm. i've heard it both ways well i i've heard it i've heard it more one way than the other i i always hear people who think well people wait most people think they need something in order to achieve what they want as an artist they need they need something more and all you really need is yourself that's it there you can make it work with your with your <laughs> you can make it work with your creativity if it's there um you don't need extra things for for this to take off you build baby steps i mean i like you said in the, the description in the beginning where i did make these mixtapes on the floor of my my providence apartment and those sold and because they sold i was able to have CDs professionally pressed, but I was also making tapes at the time and, and all, all the way through right up until now, where you're talking to me today in 2013, where I'm doing many jobs uh, that I shouldn't have to do if, if this was as easy as people think it is, but working the job of a publicist and working the job of an IT dude and working the job of a travel agent and and just the list goes on and on and on and on but like you work your ass off for you know your art whether it's whether it's directly for you or indirectly for you which is going to be great for our our editor to hear cuz he's he's that guy who gets no love yeah and does they, does everything it's a thankless job there's, a, there's many thankless jobs in this but and so uh, we're nearing the end. But a curiosity to me is when you started on the floor, your your apartment floor, it was a different world there, and people paid for stuff. How is it now to be, you know, the owner of something in an internet world where everything's free and people download? Is there well, light at the end I, of that tunnel? That's true. I think that's why there might be a lot more work. This is why I'm working eighty-hour weeks because we have to figure out ways to still live off of the music, even if most of it's not being paid for. Um, and what I've found uh, in my mid-thirties is it's a through the years. Each year gets since two thousand six. Each year 
has kind of presented itself with a new problem where the old way doesn't work anymore. There has been a major shift in the industry and we have to adapt to it and to stay on top of that, that wave is really difficult. And I don't know. I, I mean, I'm just working as hard as I can to make sure that the, not only me, but the people that we work with are, can, can rely on this so we can grow it to be a bigger thing. Cause I do think that the, some of the parts, that kind of thing, right? Like the whole, the, 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 some of the parts are not, Whatever the fucking thing is, <laughs> the whole <laughs> the whole is greater than the, the sum of the parts. You know, like I feel like the, the teamwork thing. I'm really trying to get into, even though I'm, I've been like DIY or die for fucking ever. I I love the idea of having a team and us working together as a team and to have greater impact as a team. But yeah. that's man, like it it that's even more difficult in an industry where it's every man for himself now. It's fucking crazy, man. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't have any great answers for that. All I know is that I can keep pushing as hard as I can to make Strange Famous be as effective as possible and work with the, the artists that inspire me who I think are um, deserving of a bigger audience and deserve to have their heads poke up above the ocean of disposable tr- music that right. mostly gets pushed out on the internet and cause that's where most people are getting their music and um, it's tough, man. I mean, um, we're lucky that we have secured a strong listenership and fan base and I want that to grow. And it's tough to do that without tapping into younger audiences. And now I'm wondering like if people get into hip hop or even like the underground stuff, if they listen to us and they're like, what the fuck is this? You know, like we're going to have to keep like tapping into them somehow. I'm like, no, nah, man, like there's something to derive from this music and, and, and to build off of. And then I have to stay aware of that myself and figure out how to move forward and, and develop. All right. Well, that's 42 minutes. Thank you so much. You've been listening to 42 minutes production. of and thinkbook.com. <laughs> For more information about the Thinkbook, our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website, thethinkbook.com slash 42 minutes. Thank you and have a wonderful Tuesday. Thank you, sir. You bet. Bye-bye, sir. Bye.